glad you're here to join us today for worship and hopefully you're having a great summer and everything uh, that you wanted to do this summer you're able to accomplish and taking it to a spiritual level hopefully everything that God's wanting to do in our lives he's able to accomplish as well and it seems like that when you have uh, people in your world as God has populated us in his uh, he also has hopes that somehow we can become the people that can live with him forever and when you have your own people in your house, like I've had children, three of them, you hope that someday uh, they'll be the people in every way that God has called them to be. But I also know in order to get there, it's not easy. And oftentimes when they go through struggles, you can't do it for them. And sometimes you let them walk into struggles so that they can learn and, and accomplish things in a dependence upon resources maybe outside of them, like, like the Lord. Now, you've heard me mention a praise of sending my kids to India, and uh, one of the things that I was hoping would happen if they went was that they could both grow up a little bit. They could go through some struggles, they could learn, they could see the world from a different point of view, and hopefully, hopefully, see the world is a lot larger than even themselves. And it's a concern that I have because I that the way God has made us and the way we live in the world today, there's a huge gap between the way we're designed to live and the way that we currently live in our culture. With depression rates higher than ever, suicide rates higher than ever, people uh, mentally unhealthy more than ever, I got to think that it's breaking down somewhere. And when I think about my own kids coming into a world like that, I, I got to wonder, is the flat path and plan and the way the world has engineered us really the right way. And so what we're doing is we're going through the book of 2 Corinthians and we're asking a lot of questions and one of the big questions is how does the Bible or the Word of God or the presence of Jesus in our lives help us when we're facing all of that and when our kids are facing all of that? How does God give us the resources that we need to do the things that we do? Now, some of you may be saying, that was kind of a crazy thing to send your kids to India. And maybe you're right. And all things being equal, it does sound a little weird because that's just on the other side of the planet, literally. And it's not exactly what I would call entirely the safest place in the world. But I also, do know, I also know this. The world isn't a safe place. Kids need to grow up. And become adults. And they need to have a transitional experience that says that kind of defines what I went through. And that transitional experience is called, in a lot of cultures, a rite of passage. It's the thing I went through that helped me to see that thing regarding myself that I need to work on. Or that thing that is in me that needs to come out through challenges, through crisis, through stress, through things that can even be life-threatening. And in the history of humanity, every culture has had something where kids pivot from being kids and dependents to adults, where they learn, fend for themselves, or they learn the path of how it is that we are called to live and make it in the world. Now, one of the reasons why I felt okay with it was because of the faith that we celebrate here every Sunday. The belief that what is seen in this room is only the tip of the iceberg. That there are angels that watch out for us. That there's a Holy Spirit that enables us to be aware and to, to help us to know God's presence. 
that God in his own way is at work in our lives and coming alongside us. So you know when I sent you guys to India, I also knew that you were being accompanied by angels and the prayers of other people. And that along the way, God was going to probably allow you to go through some challenges. So that in the process, you could grow up. And I honestly think that is just the design. Taking us from one place in our heart and our mind to another. And it's never been, it's, it's always been the same story. And a lot of times it involves just taking us out of ourselves and making us aware that the world is much larger than, than we realize. So, when we're going through this book of 2 Corinthians, and Paul is struggling with a church that he's had to write a number of letters to, a big part of it is helping them to just get out of their own heads and to see with greater clarity what God is up to in the world. And if you can kind of track, me, track with me on that, then I think um, we, can, we can move into some interesting places. Now, for starters, how many of you know what the word uh, narcissistic means? You know, somebody that is in love with themselves. You ever seen a person like that? You ever meet anybody that really had a very high opinion of themselves? Almost too high of an opinion of themselves. So much so that it was just downright annoying. You ever met anybody that their opinion was so high of themselves that they really couldn't see anything else around them? Well, that's what the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that psychologists and psychiatrists use to describe a person who has no ability to see beyond themselves. A narcissistic personality. And it's been a thing for a long time. You ever hear of the Greek god narcissist? You know who Narcissus was? He's the guy that went up to the pool of water and he looked down into it and as he was gazing at that water, he saw something awesome. You know what that was? Himself. And he was so fixated on his own image of himself that he couldn't, he, he, he couldn't let go of that gaze. He was just locked into it. And as that metaphor has been carried through time and space even into this moment where we still use that word narcissistic to define people who behave like narcissists we know that it's always been a thing and it will continue to be a thing when you're a little kid like infant infant size you know that the world revolves around you don't you I mean be honest if you're a baby and you're crying Somebody better come quickly. And you know what we do? Typically, we do. And you do that enough times, guess what? That reinforces the sense that, hey, I'm in control here. When the baby's in the high chair and they're eating their food and they throw it on the floor, you pick it up and you put it back on the thing if you're thinking I'm tired of messing with you. Or if you're like getting them some more food. Or they take their pacifier and they throw it out just to see who's in control. Who's at the center of the universe? Anybody remember that? you remember doing that? No? Yes? Remember that with kids? Yes. Because with kids, naturally, they think the world revolves around them. We've all been there. But as we get older, we realize, oh, wake up call. It doesn't all revolve around us. We kind of go through a crisis. However, as those kids become adults, they are 
constantly given reinforcement that says you are the center of the universe. You know what that reinforcement is? Marketing. Or TV commercials. You know the kind that say that your life is incomplete. Seven year old. If you don't have this Hot Wheels track. You're going to be miserable for the rest of your life. But if you buy this one. Oh man. The bliss is going to carry on indefinitely. And you're pulled into it after you bug your parents enough about it. And they buy that for you. And the contentment lasts all of about 20 minutes. And maybe the opposite is, is true. Or, 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 may, or maybe for a, a female it's different as far as a, a Barbie doll. Or something that would be presented to you in a very visual way. That if you do this, everything that you dream about will come true. And so you buy it, and you think, it's kind of fun for a while, but I have a whole bunch of dolls in my closet, not my closet, my daughter's closet, okay? Just for clarification, video on YouTube, um, that, that are um, uh, a, a type of doll that people bought, and there was even a place in Chicago that you sort of journeyed to to experience the American Girl doll experience. Yeah, I don't really see her paying that much attention to that anymore. And yet you think there would be a time when you would, you would, you would start to not believe the, the spiel that if you buy this, if you consume this, if you have this, you'll be complete as a human being. But then there are some people who will get on a place called the Home Shopping Network and they will get that colander. And it'll be so awesome as a colander. You'll be the first person on your block to have one. Matter of fact, it'll be the envy of all your neighbors to such an extent that they'll be knocking on your door and beating your door down literally to see this awesome colander that you have. And you can also leverage that colander in such a way as to say, I have one of these and you don't. And it's just kind of understood, I'm more important than you are. Now, nobody's saying any of that stuff. But as the salesman on the Home Shopping Network is telling you this, all of that is kind of understood. You'll be the envy of all your friends if you have that. But the thing that's so crazy about it is... They, they, they present it so well that you start to believe it. Yeah, that American Girl doll or that Hot Wheels uh, track that I was promised would satisfy every need. Yeah, I get it. That, that, that really was just a, that was a mistake. But this, this changes everything. And as we just keep buying into this whole impulse to get that thing that's going to make our life better... It's just a way of living in a culture, in a world that is designed to cater to our narcissism. If you have this, it'll all be well. Well, if, if, if you took it to another, another level, you could appreciate where the Apostle Paul was with this church in Corinth. They were narcissistic. At least, watch this video for just a couple of minutes, and you'll understand where I'm coming from. Let's go ahead and show it. It basically describes a narcissist, and if you were to look at the pages of First and Second Corinthians, you'll see a lot of this stuff going on. So let's go ahead and show it. Four types of narcissism. Narcissism and vanity are often considered mirror images of each other. 
We think of both as being enamored with their own beauty, image, and self-centered attitudes. This, however, is a shallow representation of what narcissism really is. Narcissism is a spectrum. On one side, you have self-assurance and confidence, which make for a happy and healthy personality. On the other side, you have narcissistic personality disorder, which is self-centered, non-empathetic, and emotionally draining to be around. Narcissism and vanity are somewhere in the middle. They're not healthy, but they're not as damaging as NPD. NPD can only be diagnosed by a professional and isn't something you can develop or catch. The seed of narcissism is usually planted in childhood. Differences in upbringing make for differences in narcissism and change which narcissistic traits people develop. What types of narcissism are there? How does narcissism present itself? We're so glad you asked. Narcissistic people can be either body-oriented, called the somatic narcissist, or personality-oriented, called the cerebral narcissist. Somatic narcissists focus on looking better than everyone else. They're the ones with the fancy clothes, perfect hair, and gym bodies. Cerebral narcissists focus on things like being smarter or funnier than everyone else. They'll start debates in order to win them and live off the praise fed to them from other people. On top of this body-mind division, there are also four main ways narcissism can present itself. 1. Overt Narcissism Loud, outspoken, and always right. These narcissists tend to be bullies and use their words to tear down the people around them. This is the most common presentation of narcissism. 2. Covert Narcissism Sneaky, like snakes in the grass. You might not even recognize this person as a narcissist. They pretend to be kind and gentle when in reality they're manipulative and cold, feeding off the people closest to them. They use people as a means to an end, to gain money, power, fame, whatever they want. 3. Seductive Narcissism We don't mean seductive like high heels and fishnets. These narcissists tend to praise and idolize people close to them in order to get the same response back. They sucker people in with admiration and compliments, then drop you with no warning. By playing hot and cold, they keep you on the hook and get their ego constantly fed. 4. Vindictive Narcissism These people aim, shoot, and destroy. They're the most dangerous of all the narcissists, and might be confused with the overt narcissist because of how outspoken they are. Be warned, these people will do and say anything to destroy their victims, and often will trash talk and incite anger in other third parties to turn more people against their victim. Worrying you might be a narcissist? Don't. While you might present traits of narcissism, you're likely somewhere in the middle, non-dangerous portion of the spectrum. And if you're really worried, talk to your mental health professional about a possible diagnosis. you ever wanted to know, but perhaps as you heard that, you're thinking, oh yeah, I know a person like that. Yeah, that's a characteristic that I've dealt with before. Or perhaps you're like, yeah, I'm living in the, in the shadow of that kind of a person. And perhaps the whole, uh, the whole row of suspects just went across the screen of your mind. But if we take it a little bit further into our own personal lives, we find that we're all, in a sense, born into the world to think only about ourselves, and we can become a monster like that if we don't move past it. And the Apostle Paul saw a church that had a strong cohort of narcissistic-oriented people who were very resistant to the things that he was teaching. Yeah, they wanted to be saved by the blood of Jesus, yeah, they wanted to be able to go to church and get their soul cleansed through the forgiveness of Jesus in a way that they could find peace. 
But beyond that, they were pretty content to say, I want to define religion under my own terms. And the Apostle Paul recognized that God loves us the way we are, but he's never content to keep us there. And it's like any child that is in your home, you, you understand that there's a point where they are very self-centered, but you don't want them to remain there. And you want their vision for their lives to be a little broader so that they see their place in relation to other people and how they can fit in in the most healthy way possible. And that's a big transition for any of us. Now, when the Apostle Paul is writing this, he's trying to help a bunch of Christians come up with, uh, come to the awareness that the life that they have in Christ is very different than the life they're currently living. And if you can just imagine the task in this way, there is a, a, a body of, um, there's a canal essentially that goes through the city of Corinth, and that's why it's so significant. And I just want to show that if we can. You see a, a slide with a, a picture of a, of a canal running through with two walls. Now, Corinth, if you look on a map, actually is on a, what's called a, just an isthmus, a, a, a piece of land that separates two big continents. And it was to the benefit of seafarers and people that were dealing in trade to, to take a, a, a much less amount of time to just cut through that isthmus and go on to their destination than to go all the way around to the other side. And... In, in, the, in the time of the life of the Apostle Paul as he's writing this to a city called Corinth that happens to be the manager of that, of that wonderful canal from their standpoint, this had been in play for a long enough time that it had been established as a thriving, prosperous community that benefited from all the trade that was going through there. So much so that people lived a pretty good lifestyle. And they lived a, a good lifestyle to such a degree that they had warm weather, they had um, great economic conditions, and they were able to experience the cosmopolitan nature of all these different cultures. It was, it was a lot like Southern California, if you can imagine that. Just a place that is very pleasant to live. And you could almost get to the place where you thought, since I live here, I'm... I, I, I'm it, I, I'm able to be blessed by so many different features of this location. And you start to think it's all about you. I've got a great place to live. I have a great house. I have a great income. I, 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 me, me, me. And there were some people who recognized that that was in play, but they felt like that there has to be more. And when the gospel came into their world, they came to the conclusion that there was more, that there was good news for the soul that would begin to affect everything about their lives. And so when it came into Corinth, people said, sign me up. But so many of them were so locked into their comfort zone that they didn't want to change. They didn't want to grow up spiritually. And they were preoccupied with what they wanted and that's why we have, essentially, we have First and Second Corinthians, which some people have said is actually two books that are divided up into possibly three, if not five different letters that Paul had to write to this church saying, grow up, grow up, grow up. And he wants to see them go through their own rite of passage where they learn to not see the world in reference to only themselves to a place where they see the world with reference to what God is doing in the lives of other people. I just kind of hold that thought and imagine this image here, if you would, and Paul standing on 
the left side and he's looking at that and he's saying there's a church where so much self-absorption is happening I'm curious to know if they'll last a generation. And on the other side of that is a church of the possibility that is inherent within their lives and this location. That there are so many good things that could happen if they would only grow up and take responsibility for their faith. And in the middle is that divide. And he's wondering, how do I get them from here to there? And then if you can just look at that water going through the middle for just a second. That maybe holds the key. And I'm getting ready to read a passage of scripture to you. And I want you to just keep all the things that I've said in mind as I read it. Because the Apostle Paul is wanting them to begin to, in a very experiential way, learn to grow. I mean, I could tell my kids about India all day long. I could say this is the Taj Mahal, this is the Ganges River. These are places where you don't want to go because they worship hundreds and thousands of gods. I could give them a PowerPoint presentation of everything about India, but unless they experienced it firsthand, they really wouldn't have any meaning. And so the way the Apostle Paul grows us up in his mind isn't just teaching us something, that's just getting us started, but rather it's helping us to engage in something that causes us to grow in the process. So how does he start? He starts with a need. And the need is this. Paul is from Jerusalem, which is in another part of the, part of the map. Um, just show the, the picture of the map up there, if you, if you don't mind, for a second that you have on there. This is what we're talking about for this letter. Above is a place called Macedonia. And below, with a little strip of land in between those two bodies of, 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 of land there, is Corinth, right there near the bottom, near that key. And Macedonia is going to come into play here in just a second. As the Apostle Paul is looking at their growth, he's not just saying, step up your game. He's saying, something is going on, and God needs your help. And it was this, on another part of the map, if you go a little bit to the, uh, to the right, where you can't see uh, what's happening, is a little tract of land where the city of Jerusalem resides. And they have been dealing with a famine for for, for, for a long enough period of time that people are starting to starve to death. And so he's asking churches, will you take up collections to help them with their needs because they can't even get their crops in. They can't even provide through livestock. They are hurting, and we're leaning on you to help out. And they're like, we're not interested in that. We don't know those people. They're Jewish. We're Gentiles. Or they're thinking, you know what? People all over the world, they, there's problems all over the world. There's always, always has been and there always will be. And they're kind of indifferent to the fact that brothers and sisters in the Lord and another part of the world are struggling. And Paul is trying to bring this front and center to them and say, can you help them out? It's just an abstraction. It doesn't really mean anything. And nobody, many of these people have never even been there. Most of them probably not. And yet he's saying, can you help them out? And now how does he get them to participate in something. So they just say, I'm living a good life as a religious person. I got my home. I got my job. I got my climate. I got everything locked down. I got my church over here. It's so good living the Corinthian dream. To a place where all that stuff 
isn't so important to where they are prioritizing things differently. And that's the challenge for any church leader. How can we help you to see that the stuff we're caught up in here in this world that we've been sold as the primary means of our fulfillment and contentment, at the end of the day is going to leave us empty. How do you sell that? The Apostle Paul said, I know, I'm going to tell them a story about another church in a place called Macedonia. A place I've been to before and whenever I was there I gave the gospel to as many people as I possibly could and in response to this wonderful good news, guess what they did? Well, they beat me up, they cursed me, they threw me in jail. But there seemed to be enough people in Macedonia that were saying, we're on board with that. Because the conditions here aren't so hot and we're open. And so a church kind of started. And the Apostle Paul kind of fed it. And it began to grow. And yet they didn't have a lot of money. They were getting a lot of abuse from people outside of the church. Yet they had something Corinth didn't have. And you know what it was? God's vision for the way things are in God's heart. Now the church at Corinth... They liked the benefits, but they weren't too hip on the responsibility. And so Paul tells them this. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and following, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace God of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And this is directed towards Jerusalem. He goes on to say, uh, as he builds on his, 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 uh, his, his ideas here, let's just move on to the next slide. He said, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, that is in Jerusalem, who are languishing. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Let's move on just a little bit farther. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started... So he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in love for you, see also that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. I'm going to stop right there and kind of tell you what that means if I can. The Apostle Paul has a couple of concerns here. He's looking at people like you and I, and he's saying, I want them to get engaged with the things of God. And I'm going to place in front of them a serious need, and I'm hoping that they will respond. And the church of Macedonia did, and the church of Corinth said, I don't know if that's worth our time or not. And I think that's where the breakdown really is happening. Last night, my, my, um, my, my wife and, and, and Christian went for a drive, and we were in Akron, Ohio. If you've ever been to Akron, you know there's a lot going on in that town. But one of the things I didn't know about Akron was that you can be on the north side of Akron, right outside the Cuyahoga uh, uh, National Park, and you'll see this big, what looks like a huge smokestack. And you're like, what? 
What, what in the world is a huge smokestack doing in the middle of, uh, of a residential area? And as we got closer, we discovered that what appeared to be a smokestack was actually a church. It was attached to a church facility. And then it occurred to me that whenever I was growing up, there was an evangelist who was on TV all the time, and his name was Rex Humbard. Anybody remember Rex Humbard? And some of you are like, I don't know who Rex Humbard is, Pastor. And, and there I'm dating myself, okay? But if you, if you consider what he was doing in the 50s and 60s and 70s to build his, his television empire and his church empire, you know that in the process he was saving a lot of people, but he was also getting confused on the, on the vision, I think. And maybe you benefited from his ministry, and that's awesome, but here's where I think he got it wrong. You see, whenever you're a pastor, one thing that you have to do is you have to engage people in the process of doing kingdom work. And you have to be aware of things that are on God's radar that he's wanting to engage us in and then try to direct the flow of energy and resources and serving in that, in that manner because that's just how the church works. And so you're constantly casting vision for what people can do. For example, in Macedonia, the, the town that we're talking about, maybe that rings a bell with you. I know it does with Rich Capel. Because if you look at the map of Macedonia, uh, another map that I have up there, let's just, let's just go ahead and, sh and shoot that up there if we can. Um, you'll see this. Just, just click on the map uh, icon. And, and you'll see that at the top is Macedonia, and right below it is the town that we're talking about. But up and off to the right is an area called Bulgaria. And maybe you've uh, been around here long enough that you realize that we have set our sights on what's happening in that region of the world, primarily because there are a whole lot of people there who do not know the Lord because they lived in an era when the Soviet Union was in power and they said it was illegal to worship God. They established something called you know, uh, uh, the, the wall that separated the east from the west. And inside that wall, communist people who lived in that block lived without any awareness of what's going on in the rest of the world. Empty of anything spiritual, because they were told by the state to be atheist. And then when the wall fell down, and people looked at the world beyond them, they started to fill this void in their lives of everything that they could because it was spiritual in nature, they weren't always filling it with the right things. So if you're with me so far, people in Macedonia and in Bulgaria who were part of that mix, who came to the Lord, realized that I've got a whole bunch of people around me who are not enjoying the benefit of the gospel. And they dedicated themselves to make sure that it gets known. And they've actually come into our church. A couple of, a couple of young ladies, I'll show you their picture. Maybe this will ring a bell here. Um, one of them is um, on, the, on the far right there. There's Kremi. And then in the, in, the, in the yellow shirt, that's Andriana. And they were here last fall. And they were sharing exactly what they were doing. And if you look on your sermon title, it says, um, you know, moving from narcissism to generosity. But the, the stop that we're at in our convertible Hemi Challenger here in Corinth is about moving from personal to professional. Okay, just stay with me. By professional, you can, you can take that to mean I'm a white-collar person 
and I have, you know, a business degree or I have something along those lines, and that's my profession. But in reality, the time that the word was first used, it meant I profess a belief in something that defines how I live here in life. If you're a professional and you say, well, I, I'm, I, I'm a... Um, I'm a, I'm a CEO of a company and you're not doing a very good job of it, it means that who you say you are and what you're doing don't match up very well. If you're a professional and you say, I'm, um, you know, I'm a, I'll pick on my friend Luke, I'm a CPA. And if he's not getting the numbers right, then I would say, yeah, uh, you're not really practicing what you say you are very well. Now, mind you, Luke is very astute with numbers, so we'll leave it at that. But the truth of the matter being, there's always been this connection between who you say you are and what it is that you do. And so when you say professional, it essentially means I'm professing Christ and now I'm living it out. Now we come full circle back to these two right here. They were trained as professionals. They were trained to have degrees that afforded them opportunities in that region of the world that they could live a pretty comfortable life. And yet, the profession that they had for the lordship of Jesus in their life changed their point of view. And rather than pursuing those worldly goals, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but in their case, they said, no, we've got too many people starving for the gospel all around us. There's literally a famine happening in our very midst, and something needs to be done. And so they've dedicated their lives to expanding on the kingdom work that's all around them. And we've invited them over here, and we, many of us support them. And, and there's this sense of they're doing something for the kingdom, and their physical presence here has given us a sense of what used to be abstract to these are real people with real kingdom issues. And a lot of people who thought at first they were an abstraction and I don't want to be bothered by missionaries and I don't want to be bothered by something that's not even in our country. Some of them began to say, you know what, I met these people and I'm starting to get a sense that the world is larger than myself. And if you come a little bit closer to home, there were a number of years ago whenever the Guatemalan community started coming in to Salem, Ohio. And I can remember being at a ministerial association meeting and Poppy came up and everybody was pretty indifferent. But being trained as a missionary like I am, I'm like, why is no one concerned about this population of people not being engaged with God's kingdom and church here in Salem? And, you know, long story short, we've managed to bridge that gap and see a lot of fruit come out of it. So much so that I can remember some people even being resistant to having them in our church, having a full change of heart where they were open to tutoring these young lives and would even say something that is key here. When I help them out, I find so much joy. There is something that this does for me that living in a rich and wealthy and well-resourced culture cannot do. Catch that? There is something that serving this community of people does inside of me 
there's something that's different, that's deeper, that is more significant that I can't buy on Home Shopping Network. I can't just feed my narcissism and say, I want more of that, I'm going to get more of that. No, it's almost the opposite. I almost have to get out of myself, find it. And I think what these two that we're talking about discovered, and so many others, is what Paul mentioned about the church of Macedonia. He said they discovered grace. Not just the grace that covers our sins with the blood of Jesus that we sung about, but grace that says, like that water that flows through that channel, my life is in many ways a channel for God to flow through into the lives of other people. And the only way that I can really experience Him isn't, isn't so much as hearing about Him and hearing the story, which is important, but I've got to open myself up to being used in situations where God is saying, I want my grace to flow through your life into their life. And that is the only way that you can cross from that darker side of that, of, that, of, of that channel that goes through Corinth to the lighter side where you stop thinking so much about yourself and your needs and somebody sitting in my pew and on and on and on to a place where you're like, oh, guess what? I started serving and I discovered that God is now flowing through my life in ways that, huh, why didn't somebody tell me about this sooner? And all I can tell you is I can't really... I can't really tell you about that in ways that will be meaningful because words can't carry that freight. Just like even going to India. You, you, you try to come back and tell us about it, words can't carry the freight very well, can they? You just got to do it. And the Apostle Paul says, I'm laying before you a vision of a need. But it's not like the tower that you saw in Akron where it's in the middle of a religious complex and it's built up. And do you know, I discovered, do you guys know what tower I'm talking about? Okay. Well, I don't want to down the, 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 the ministry because I'm sure much good fruits come out of it. But this is where I think it's a little misguided. Because when you're casting vision and you're trying to engage people and allow grace to flow through their lives... You need to showcase a real-world need, like, we're, like I mentioned with these two gals. But sometimes you kind of cross the line back into narcissism, where it's like, guess what? We're going to build this religious complex, and it's going to be an awesome glory to God. And we're going to build this tower in the middle, and we're going we're gonna to do what they do up in Canada and Toronto. We're going to put a rotating restaurant at the top of it. And then when people come from miles away all over the country, they'll just see the glory of this beautiful building that we've built in the name of God and the kingdom. But for some reason, the restaurant never did make it to the top of the tower. And it just didn't work. And I honestly think that it was more a tower that fed narcissism than it did serving others. I could be wrong. But when we do kingdom work, God flows the best when it's flowing into the lives of people that are hurting the most. 
Brian mentioned about tears. Phil sang a song this morning about tears in the bottle. And if you read through Psalm 80 through 88, it's all about the pain that we bring into this room. It's all about the tears that we have from life's pressing in on us, from its disappointments, from the consumeristic culture that has us more depressed than it does feeling joy, from the disappointments of life when things don't go our way to the tragedies of life that we can't, we can't bring meaning to. And the Bible says in those chapters, tucked away this little phrase, and God stores my tears in a bottle. Why would God store my tears, your tears, in a bottle? He's too busy for that, right? No. No, he's not too busy at all. Matter of fact, he loves you so much that he's paying careful attention. But like anything, I can't, I can't tell Stephen, since you're here, I'll pick on you. I can't tell him, I'm going to make you do this. I just got to kind of lovingly guide him through life. And I hope when he has kids, he does the same. And what God is doing for us is he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm letting you go through these struggles. And they're not of my doing, but they are part of this life. And when you go through them, I want you to know where my heart is at. It is deeply grieving over your pain. And I want to see something happen that can make your day a better day. And that's why Paul was so concerned that the good news would get out there. That places like Corinth, places like Macedonia, and other places that he had in his, in, in, in his sights, they would begin to be outposts to people that, like so many Guatemalans were, disconnected from the kingdom, not knowing the joy and the peace of Christ. I want the church to be a place that isn't all about them, but all about what my kingdom agenda is because there's so much work to be done. And the only way that will happen is for all of us to grow up. Well, when Paul is asking for the Corinthians to grow up, he's just pointing us to the fact that there is a channel that flows through our lives and it can only be filled by the presence and the grace of God. And it's going from one place to another through us. And when we experience that grace, we start to see the world is larger than ourselves. I'm guessing all of you are good parents. Because this is what I told my friend Rich when your bundle of joy entered the world. I don't know where you're at with the world revolving around you, but I can assure you, when he comes into the world, it will no longer revolve around you. Will it, uh, uh, no, Nona, Noni, which is, which is Smithies for grandparents. And it's kind of all about them, isn't it? And that's just the way God is. When we sang about the blood of Christ so dramatically, it was another way of saying God has poured out every fiber of his being as he sees the tears welled up in our lives that he stores in a bottle. And he's wanting to remedy that through his son. And he can only accomplish that through his church. But his church has to be, well, it has to grow up and get out of its own head and get out of its own self. It literally has to deny itself and take up its cross and follow him. Now, if you're new to the, this experience, 
That's a lot to ask in one day. But I do want to assure you of this. The more you begin to cross that divide, and it's a lot of just beginning to engage with the things of the Lord, the more you're like, yeah, you know what? It's not really about me. It's about God. And it's about people that need the word of the Lord come alive like I have. Also, Paul's looking at these people in Corinth and he's saying, I'm just going to showcase the church at Macedonia. They don't have anything, but they're given everything. He's telling the Corinthians, you need to look at what they're doing and discover there's a joy to be found as they do it that causes them to want to do it more. Now, in closing this message, Paul does write these words. Let's move on to the next slide. He says this. According, uh, let's move on to the next one after that one. And one more. He said, um, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor like the Macedonians, so that you might by his poverty become rich. And then he goes on to say, And in this matter I give my judgment. This is what I see going on. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Now, how do you go from being selfish and self-centered and narcissistic to saying, I want to do that. And maybe for Kremi and Andriana, I want to pursue something that's going to last longer than even my career. I have a prayer for you in this message. It's that God gives you a desire to want to grow, but not grow up. And then as you're going through the grow up phase, even you're in India for six weeks, he could have just said, as he landed in Moscow, nah, it sounded good, but I think I want to just come back home. And I come back home. But he stuck it out. And God's saying, pick it out. I'm faithful. And I'll walk with you through this. And I will do my good work through you. Jesus gave himself totally and completely for what I've just described so that we could be the beneficiaries and we could grow up and we could become like him in serving. Now you're somewhere in that place. Maybe you're just not even connected yet. We want to help you out with that. Or maybe you're in a place where you're saying, I do want to move away from my narcissistic tendencies where I'm thinking more about other people because I know that's probably healthier. And we just like to connect you with serving, like Brian mentioned earlier. Or maybe it's, yeah, I want to do something even more dramatic. I want to help lead, or I even want to go on the mission field. I don't know what the case is, but wouldn't that be awesome if we started sending missionaries from here to other places around the world, even more so than we have? That's what God's up to. And it just begins with us being open to him in the spirit of surrender. Father, thank you for helping us to come around your word and hopefully speaking through me to every heart here that the things that you've had to say we've received and 
been open to and hopefully challenged by and help us father to persevere in those realities so that our joy can be made full in you I just thank you father for helping us along the way you love us where we're at and you will always be faithful but you also have a desire to see us grow into the things of Christ and I I just pray for everyone here that that would happen as we move forward in him Bless everyone here, bless your word, and may it nourish our souls in Jesus' name. Amen.